You're listening to the Kingdom Project Podcast. These are discussions on biblical theology and interpretation. The emphasis is on context and grace. The goal is to promote biblical literacy by displacing and debunking most modern interpretations. The challenge is to engage in healthy conversation that may stretch, but sharpen iron. This is The Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. So we're finishing chapter 6 of Hebrews today. I said we would. I didn't want to stop in the middle of a, a chapter before we, if we took a pause or a break. So we, we're going to finish chapter 6 today, verses 9 through 20. This is the promises of God. And then, uh, so right before he, the author gets ready to go finally explain Melchizedek and all that, I'm going to have to just leave you guys hanging because we're going to pause for a week or two. All right, so uh, just going to pause for a week or two just to switch it up. Uh, that way it can get switched up a little bit for me too, studying, because I've said this is hard and it hurts my brain sometimes. So, <laughs> uh, but I, I'm going to, I don't, we're going to look at Israel next week, okay? So um, it's my position that I feel is a biblical position. Um, and with everything that's gone, it, this happens every so often in our world. But you remember a couple of weeks ago, Israel and Hamas, and they were blowing each other up. Um, it always happens from time to time. And then every time that happens, everybody online is like, it's almost, the t- it's almost time the rapture is going to happen and all these types of things and end times and and all that stuff, and we have to keep backing Israel because you have to bless Israel or you'll be cursed. But I don't believe that. So, um, and I'm not going to be like, this is how I believe, so you should believe. Um, it's, it's known as dispensationalism, and it's only held to in high regard here in the West. There's no, nobody else in the church sees it that way. It's called dispensationalism. Israel is no longer the children of God as they were in the Old Testament because we've seen so many times. How many times have we seen going through like in Galatians and now Hebrews that everyone, we're all children. We're all chosen, right? If we're believers. Okay. Uh, So it's not like Christians are second class citizens because that's sometimes how. and, and, And also... When people are always like, we have to bless them, it's like, well, that's, you, you almost sound like you're saying you're obligated to. You have to, um, and you don't really want to, but we better do it just so we're, we're okay, right? <laughs> Which is like, well, your heart's not in the right position anyway to actually be doing it. So anyway, anyway, I want to talk about who, who Israel really is. Because I believe the, the actual real nation of Israel came to an end in 70 AD. That's what we're always talking about here. That end of the Old Covenant when the d- temple got destroyed and the Jews were killed and then they were scattered. You have to remember the first church, the, the first members, the congregations, the Christians, those, those were Jews. Those were the faithful remnant. There was always a faithful remnant. So if, you, if you're up for a challenge this week, 
Try to find where Israel is first mentioned in Scripture, and you'll find out who Israel is, and then you can start to develop a little family line if you want. Um, but Israel was not, didn't start off as a nation. Israel started off as a man. All right? And Israel, just like many other things in the Old Testament, is a type and shadow of what would be chosen people of God. It was a group that he called out then. Now it's the body of Christ. Yes? I just had a question. Yeah. Was it several years ago that the Jews were told to go back to Israel? 1948, it got reinstated as a, a, as a, a nation. Yeah, 1948. And the dispensationalists, they said in 1940, that would be, and, and it was actually, who, who was the president at that time? 1948? <laughs> anyway. Huh? No. We, we moved to the U.S. Embassy. Trump did. There. But uh, what did you say? Yeah. Is it true? He 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 was told he was told you have to let them go back um, because if they go back then you'll be blessed and Jesus will come sooner and rapture us and and get us all out of here and so and it's this is whole escape mentality of like come Lord come get us out of here. Um, when Jesus actually prayed that God would actually not take us out of the world, but leave us in the world so we could disciple nations, right? Uh, so in 1948, the dispensationalists said, well, there you go. The time clock has now started again, the prophetic time clock. Um, so within a generation, the rapture will happen, and a generation in the Bible is 40 years. And so in, in 1988, that book came out, 88 Reasons Why, Jesus, Jesus will return in 1988, and he didn't come back. <laughs> and so the author said, oh, I was off by a year. So in 1989, he put 89 reasons why Jesus will come back in 1989, and he didn't, he didn't come back. So uh, biblical generation has far past the, that, that time frame now, and here's to, he'll, here's, we are still. And they said, well, maybe a generation 70 years. Well, we're, that's up now, too. We're up. The dispensationalism it's they, they've they've lost everything they're grasping at straws with this type of theology they don't like the camp i'm in because they say well that's replacement theology you want to replace israel with the church it's like not me it's in the bible right here <laughs> the promises go to abraham and his seed singular jesus which all comes to us so that's what we're going to be looking at for the next week or two okay and i don't mean to I just want everybody to know that I'm not trying to make anybody offended or anybody mad. You, for, 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 uh, uh, that's not the right word for, for, uh, it doesn't like, yeah, you pray. We pray for Israel. We pray for, we should pray for all nations. We should pray for them all. If you do want to support them, however you do, besides prayer, I mean, that's, that's up to you, but you don't have to be like, am I, am I talking too much? Uh, yeah, my time. <laughs> it had to be like, you know, the, the Hagee. Like, they don't even need to know about Jesus. They're blood descendants. They're fine. Don't even, like, they're, they're chosen people. They're going straight to heaven. It's like, no, that's not right. So, <laughs> so I want to talk about that because, as I said, every time something happens, you know, two weeks ago, 
everybody was having rapture dreams and then a ceasefire happened and nothing's going on now and Jesus didn't come back. Okay, so even though everybody on Facebook and TikTok was like, any day now, so, and it didn't happen. So we do this every couple of years. <laughs> so it's like, let's talk about it, okay? And let's see what the Bible actually says. And then you guys can rest. So it's not, it's not to make anybody mad or upset. It's just saying, I don't see that when you study scripture. Okay, so that was way too long to, to say what I was going to be doing next week. <laughs> so we're, we're going to look here, uh, 9 through 20, the rest of chapter 6. So just to remember, we've made our way through the third warning. All right, here in Hebrews. And so far, the author has expressed his concern for his church because they weren't making spiritual uh, maturity first and foremost, right? They were dull of hearing and all this. He said, he said the, you could put Jesus to open shame each time that you pursue ungodly, disobedient things or lifestyles, okay? So we ended with uh, this, we, finishing that warning last week of the parable and a farmer and his field and the harvest and all that. So now the, the author now moves into encouragement. All right. And this encouragement is hoping to spur them on into a better place. Okay. So we'll look at nine through 12 first. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and uh, the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. All right, so he says, they, are, they he says, they're convinced of better things concerning this group of people that have first received this. So the we here, I would say most likely would be the apostles. And the better things they believe this group of people, this church will receive are the things that accompany salvation, he says. And things better than what he just described in verse like four, four to eight. All right. Uh, of chapter six. So he's saying, I'm confident that you're going to live for God. You're, you're, you're not going to just remain babies in Christ. You're going to grow up. All right. He, even though you were there, like I'm encouraging you. I know you're not going to stay in that place. There, so there are these things that accompany salvation. And we know these things. Paul calls them spiritual fruit, right? In Galatians, he lists, lists the uh, uh, fruit of living in the spirit of our salvation, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, right? So the burden of, of Hebrews as a whole, right? The burden of Hebrews is not the rescu rescuing of sinners from hell. It's the endurance of the saints. It's perseverance. To remain faithful to Jesus. Okay? So we should interpret, interpret verse 9 like, But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that lead to deliverance, though we speak in this way. 
right? He says, though we speak in this way, we've spoken some very strong things about you. I am confident that you're not going to turn away from Christ. You're going to stay faithful. You're going to do those things that lead to deliverance from apostasy. You're not going to abandon the new covenant and what Christ has done to go back to the old ways under Moses. You will go on to maturity. That's what he's that's what he's saying there. And we have to remember that's the contrast, the old covenant versus the new. And then the author says in verse 10, you notice that the, he says the Lord will not overlook the good works that these believers have accomplished in their walk. There's no need to worry that something that we have done in faith will go forgotten or overlooked. Now, some are going to get into that whole debate of you do more of those things, you're going to get more rewards and all that. And I just don't go into that. Uh, I think the gospel makes us equal. But the point here is that the deeds of kindness, right? What we do as, as Christians, like done to the people of God, they are reckoned by God as done to himself, all right? That, that, that is obedient living, all right? I, I you know, Tom, Tom needs something done in his house or something. I come over there and I help you out. That just sounds like we're buddies. But also it's because we're brothers in Christ, I don't care to give up some of my time to come and help you do that. You know, that, that is me doing it unto God as well. That's how God sees it, right? He reckons it that way. So also then, um, he, God knows, uh, he knows that. He doesn't overlook it is what he's saying. So he knows that, that these people have labored for God the author does, giving generously to the saints, and, and they still do. But also notice the writer emphasizes that our works must be done in love toward the brethren, all right? I, don't, I wouldn't go help Tom fix something just because I want to get an extra point in heaven. That's the wrong attitude, you know? If, if, that's, if that's the only reason why I'm going to go do something, you know, people will say, you've done your good deed for the day, right? You know, it's like, well, I didn't do do it just to say I did a good deed for today. You know, it's just the reaction that Christ has done in us to change us. And that's what we do. So if I were to go do that just for that reason, might as well not do it at all because <laughs> there's no point, right? So it's love towards the body. It's the work that's within the body of Christ that should be the focus of our life. It includes the work that takes the gospel out to those two, to disciple nations, right? Then in verse 11, he says uh, that each one of you, uh, which, which says he, he expects everyone in the church to follow this same example of diligence. And his comment makes the point of what it means for our walk as a Christian. All right, Th this is so like today when I was putting this together, Remember, <laughs> you have to remember the standard, all right? The standard, if you want a standard or a measuring stick in which we are seeking is not to be found in another Christian, <laughs> okay? A lot are going to say, look to them or look to that. And to a point, that's okay. But the issue is if we measure our walk of obedience or spiritual maturity against somebody else, 
We're going to be tempted to just make comparisons to those who just make us feel good. All right? They may have a gifting you will never have. <laughs> and you're going to be burdened. You're going to be disappointed. You may find somebody that isn't really who you really think they are either. You know? You can be disappointed. It may lead you down a road in which they are on as well. Our standard is always found in the Word of God itself. Our standard of Christian living is in the Word of God. Okay? So verse 11 goes on to say, to have full assurance of hope until the end. Literally, reading says, to the fullness of the hope or to the full development of the hope. All right, so the diligence is God's appointed means of the full development of the hope. And the word hope here means expectation or confidence. So diligence in the Christian life brings a, a hope of faithfulness right up to the end. And that there, we could debate on the end. It always trips people up as well. One's going to say uh, the end is the end, of, the end of your life, the end of your life and into eternity with the Lord. And then another uh, will say they're speaking of the end of this this 40 year period that they were in and this end of persecution, end of the old covenant age. Um, I don't see a problem with it being both. Right. It'll be applicable for us today up until the end when I pass. Verse 12, he says, don't become sluggish. All right. Same word he's used when he said you become uh, dull of hearing. But here it is. Do not become sluggish. All right. They were sluggish in their hearing, which would lead to a sluggishness uh, of life if they did not become more diligent about what their lives and walking the Christian Christian life. So in contrast to this sluggishness. There is the acquisition then of promises. They must imitate the faithful. The imitate is, is mimic. Okay? So, um, be imitators. <clears throat> We're all called to imitate. Alright? Now, this is going to sound contradictory to what I just said. But, I, I remember I said, our... Uh, our standards should come from the word of God, all right? Not out here, even if it's in, within the church, because there are godly uh, people in the word of God in which we can look up to and try to imitate, all right? So I just want to make sure I'm not contradicting myself here. <laughs> so we are called to imitate godly individuals. We're going to get a list of all the, a lot of these people uh, in chapter 11, which is famously known as the Hall of Faith. So the writer says... Let's not be lazy, all right? But let's be imitators of those who've come before us who followed God, who inherited the promises by living patiently according to faith. And again, inheritance here can be eternal life or the consummation of the new kingdom. Verses 13 through 16. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and, and, and all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. All right, so 
As soon as he says, be an imitator, the first person he goes to is Abraham, right? Here, Abraham's a great example, right? He is singled out here. God made a promise to Abraham, okay? Remember, promise in Hebrews is related to an inheritance. So God made this promise to Abraham, and he bound himself to it with an oath. Now, verse 14 is a quotation, and it comes from Genesis 22. And that's the climax of the story of the offering of Isaac, right? Abraham's famous test. He's 75 years old when he first received the promise of the land and great uh, posterity and that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him, right? So, uh, you know, and, and God says, hey, take your son, sacrifice him. The, the writer of Hebrews is saying two things in this in this Old Testament text. He saw a promise and he saw an oath. The promise was that Abraham would be blessed and that uh, his descendants would multiply and that they would be triumphant over their enemies. And the oath was in the words, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. So God promises. He, God takes an oath. And if someone, you have to... In this time, if someone would swear an oath in, in these days, especially Old Testament times, right? He, he's pledging their very life in the, in, in the dispute, okay? So the context of Genesis 22, where the promise and the oath are made, supports the fact that they were made in direct response to Abraham's obedience of faith in offering Isaac. Right? Because you have done this, I will bless you. In other words, the essence of the qualification for this promise and this oath is it's not Abraham's Jewishness. All right, and here we are. Now, this is kind of where, uh, why I'm going to segue into that next week. It's, it's not that his, Abraham's Jewishness. It's his faith. Right, And that's, that's exactly what the present context is here in, in 6.12. It implies it is by faith that we inherit the promises. It's not ethnic Jewishness, all right? 17 through 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promises, or the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Okay, so the Lord delivered Abraham an oath for the sake of his heirs. All right, is what he's saying. So the Lord wanted to make clear that when we serve... And we please the Lord, he is pleased, and we are, we are assured to receive a blessing. What type will be debated among Christians for all time? <laughs> Whether it's physical, financial, spiritual, you fill in the gaps there. I'm not getting into it. We have strong encouragement here then to take refuge in God's promises. If the Lord was willing to swear an oath to Abraham, an oath, an oath that wasn't even necessary, 
It's further evident then to us that the Lord wants us to live according to our faith that he's gifted us with patience and self-sacrifice, self-control. And when we do these things, we are assured that our hope is not empty. It will not be empty. All of this God has done to show more convincingly than it says to the heirs of the promise. All right. So the proof of God's fulfillment of his promise promises is given to believers. And and we we need this. We need this because sometimes we get shaken in our faith. Right. We need to be reassured that God always does what he says he was going to do. We know, we know he's going to do it. <clears throat> so why did, why did God add an oath? An oath to a promise, right? He always said, like, don't swear. <laughs> right? Not supposed to swear. You know, like, little kids are always like, I swear on my mother's grave. Don't do that. Right? Not supposed to do that, but. <laughs> God made an oath. I had heard so much, though, about a kid, like, don't make a promise, don't oath, don't all this stuff. And then I'm like, God made an oath, though. <laughs> he didn't have to. We know this. He didn't have to in order to establish his work. But he did. He did it. The answer is given to us, though, in verse 18. He did it to show how much encouragement of hope that he wants us to have. He's passionate about our being people who have an unshakable hope, right? He insists that we be people of confidence, of confident hope, not of just like uncertainty. He wants us to think about the future and to be totally confident and assured about how it's going to turn out. That it's all good. That's what this text is about. You know, when people say God's in control, right? God's got it. That's the point of like this, like, it's good. And it becomes sort of a generic phrase anymore. But as you were saying earlier at the beginning, when you, when you break things apart and you analyze it the right way, and you see how God in his providence and his sovereignty had stuff lines up. Right. So to have that hope, even at the beginning, that because you had the hope, that's how you can be able to look and analyze and see that after the fact. Right. And you don't lose all your marbles during it either. Right. That's the point here. So um, God then. Guaranteed his trustworthiness. Through two things that could not be changed. They're unchangeable. His word of promise and his oath in confirmation of that word. So God is a God of truth and his word is truth. And we know God cannot lie. I just said that. So why, why does God want us to know that then? Why does God want us to know that he cannot lie? Right. Verse, verse 18 again, it says, so we might have strong encouragement. God wants us to be sure about his promises that we will be encouraged. This is why he made both a promise and an oath to Abraham. This insurance is a strong consolation to those who have 
who have uh, fled to seize this hope set before him, them. His, God's promise, God's oath are strong encouragement to those uh, uh, who, who need, need them. Well, we all need it, don't we? <laughs> and it, it also alludes to the trials which, like Abraham, the heirs of promise are called to endure, which we'll see later in chapter 10. So that hope that the author mentions in verse 18 is their eschatological hope, all right? Big word, eschatology, eschaton, last things, all right? It's their last thing, hope of inheritance and dominion. To flee, to seize this hope is to enter boldly into the Holy of Holies to get help through our compassionate high priest. So they're to seize this hope by enduring this moment. They have to get through this. They, and they were to, to do that by keeping their eyes on Jesus, trusting in his power. And God would see to it that man uh, who, who fled uh, for, for refuge obtained that safe refuge. Now think about that uh, here, if they're fleeing for refuge, Jesus told them where to flee. Flee to the hills of Judea. These people knew that, all right? <clears throat> but also the Lord is our refuge. We are to fl flee to him, all right? Spiritually, it's him. It's not a physical place. So we are to flee to obtain a refuge. We obtain a safe refuge. Are you okay? No. <laughs> A safe refuge in, uh, in, in Jesus. Because as we do, he gives us grace to help us in our times of need. So God's promise and oath of inheritance to those of faith gives us a strong encouragement. In the last two texts, 19 and 20, <clears throat> we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right, so this hope of inheritance, he says, is an anchor for our life. It's an anchor for life. The early church used the symbol of an anchor, okay? They used that to refer to Christian hope. All right, it was just as common as the fish, all right? We, st we still have the fish around today, the Jesus fish, right? And that, that was an early church sign, all right? But the sign of the anchor, it, it's been found carved in walls and numerous caves in Jerusalem as well, and in that part of the world. It was uh, designed to be an encouragement to the Christians who were suffering martyrdom, being persecuted, and being oppressed, they would see the anchor and their thoughts would turn to the passage and the teaching that it contained. The hope of inheritance accomplishes for the soul the same thing which an anchor does for a ship. All right. It holds it secure in the midst of a storm. All right. It keeps it from drifting away. That in the temp, temp, uh, tempest and trials of life, we are held secure by our hope. So in order to be steadfast and hold a vessel steady, an anchor has to be tied to something that's immovable outside of the ship itself, right? So a believer, like a vessel, has this unbreakable 
immovable anchor that's tied to his soul, if you will, that gives him stability and security for his life, which is Jesus. So where's that anchor secured to? And the author says it's into the inner place behind the curtain. Curtain is veil. And for the Jew, that phrase would conjure up pictures of the tabernacle or the temple. With the outer court, the holy place, and then the holy of holies, and within that veil, the very presence of God was manifested. Right? So... Uh, when the author is telling us that our hope, our anchor, is secured in the presence of God, it's because Jesus is already gone, set down at the right hand of God. It's the same ideal that's repeated time and time again in Ephesians, that we have been seated with Christ in heavenly places. Then in verse 20, it's where Jesus has gone as a forerunner for us. All right, which means we will enter with him someday. So he has gone as a high priest. He's not in the order of Aaron and Levi who had to offer sacrifices for themselves and for the people. All right, and who died and had to be replaced year by year and who offered blood of bulls and goats, which could never take away sin. Anyway, and we'll see these things lined out. Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies once for all with his own, uh, his own infinitely precious blood and his own indestructible life so that his atoning work for us is perfect and it's complete and it lasts forever. And that's what verse 20 means when it says that Jesus has become a high priest forever according to to the order of Melchizedek. So to call Jesus our forerunner implies we will follow. He's led the way to victory and to dominion. All right, and that finishes chapter six. And then with all of that, the author finally comes back to the point. Like he started back in chapter, like in 511. Five like he finally comes back around it to it. Now he's going to go on to say the things that he wants to say about this priesthood of Melchizedek and refer it to Jesus, okay? But you'll have to wait a couple weeks. I'll just leave you hanging again. All right, so we're we're finally going to learn about Melchizedek when we pick this back up in a week or two, okay? So...